once again from the reptileapartment.com, the living room. I'm your host, John F. Taylor, as usual, and once again, as usual, we are brought to you today by Comic Karma, your comic book journey destination. In this week's episode, we're talking with Mr. Robert Applegate of Applegate Reptiles, and he sits down with us and talks to us about the snakes, lizards, uh, some funny stories about things that he's owned, things that he's done, and just about the industry as a whole and where he sees it going and uh, what the future might hold for the whole industry. So without further ado, here's Mr. Robert Applegate of Applegate Reptiles. It's more of itself. And so, <laughs> essentially, you being my customer today, three years from now you're going to be my competition. The law of supply and demand, the prices go down, and so you don't make as much money. So you better love the animals too, but right. it's, it's a nice side income because it will pay for itself plus provide some money in your pocket. Right. Now a lot of these people, well, I shouldn't say these people, but... I think you'll know who I'm referring to. A lot of people get in this industry for one specific purpose, to make money. And it seems like a lot of them go about it all the wrong way. <laughs> they, they call it, well, I think what you guys call these <laughs> individuals is fly-by-nighters. You know, they get all this radical, you know, new herpetology stuff and new, you know, the newest snake on the block, try to breed it. They're successful for a couple of years. And then... I don't know if they get distracted or if they just don't make what they thought they were going to make. It probably varies with individuals. Okay. You could, you could take this guy and say one and that other guy over there would be different. But mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was about five years old when I brought my first snake home. And my parents wouldn't let me keep it anywhere near the house. And by the time I was 10, I had 60-some snakes in the bedroom, including a boa constrictor that didn't fit in the cages, so it was running loose, so we just agreed to keep the door closed. But my mother had gotten acclimated to the point where she would pick it up and lay it outside the window where she could keep an eye on it in the morning, let it get a little sun, and clean the room or whatever, and then go pick it up and bring it back. So wow. that was quite a, quite a five-year transition. <laughs> but I've always loved the snakes. I've always been interested in reptiles in general, but snakes right. specifically. And, and um, I was doing it when it cost money, and I was doing it when you know you started making a lot of money, and I'll still be doing it when it costs money again, because right. I, I love the animals. I, I'm not one of these guys that has to have the newest thing on the block. My thing seems to be to take the animals and work with them for many generations to try to clean them up and you know make them more attractive and a little bit better suited for captivity. Right. Because I've, I've got some animals that I started working with 30 years ago that I've still got. Exactly. And, um, just, I mean, some of the animals were a couple thousand dollars or the equivalent at the time. Now they're less than a hundred dollars, and I still have them. You still have them, yeah. <clears throat> now, speaking of the uh, big snake, I, I would love for my readers to get a perspective on what uh, you have called big snakes, because a lot of people say big snakes, and they think you know ball python, and it's like <laughs> that's not a big snake. Well, and the story I'm re- actually referring to is the one that got loose in I don't know what it was at the time, but it was your reptile room. And you had a bunch of venomous stuff. Well, that was the anaconda. There you go. <laughs> that wasn't really a big snake. It was only about 11 feet. And uh, she only probably, I don't know, probably 6 to 8 inch diameter. And essentially back in those days, we had the slide top aquariums. Right. And I had rows and rows of shelves in this one room with slide top aquariums. With, And I was also importing at the time, so I had cobras and puff adders and rattlesnakes and all sorts of things. And this anaconda decided to crawl along the shelf, several shelves as a matter of fact. And I remember I was waiting for my carpool to pick me up to go to my 24-hour fire department shift and thought I'd run out to the snake room and take a quick look, make sure everything was okay, and I opened the door and there's a massive mangled glass and twisted metal from the tanks and cobras and rattlesnakes and things scooting all over the floor and, and on some of the other shelves. And I didn't have time to deal with it, so I just kind of shed a tear, closed the door, locked it, and went away for 24 hours, and then came came home and started working on cleaning it up. But what I, my biggest snake was a 240-pound Burmese python, and she was over 20 feet long. I never really got her totally straightened out and officially measured, but just when she would go out and cruise along, you could see that she was, you know, huge and heavy. Fortunately, she was friendly, and when you were going to clean the cage, you picked up one end and walked until it hung up on something. So you laid that end down, and you went back and got the other end. But the meanest snake was a 135-pound African rock python, because 
I had that, and a guy gave it to me because it was getting too big for his cage. And it was fairly docile in his small cage. But when I put it in a big eight-foot-long cage, man, it was trying to eat your face. Wow. I remember when I was... I finally found somebody that wanted it for a breeder, and I told him it was slightly aggressive and it weighed 135 pounds. <clears throat> he called me back and said, normally when people exaggerate to him, they exaggerate the size. You underplayed the slightly <laughs> aggressive part. <laughs> but when I went to ship this thing, um, I had this huge laundry bag, and I had one of my firemen uh, guys in the carpool stop, and I just asked him, would you help me throw a snake in a sack before you head out? <laughs> and so I'm looking at this this snake, and so I get this rug, and I throw over it, and there was a little wrinkle in the rug that I thought was where the head was, so I dived on it, and it went flat, and the head popped out the other end and come at me, and I backed out of, oh, the, backed out of the cage and shoved the couch halfway across the floor <laughs> with my momentum. So now the snake is going spastic, and it's all over the place, so I... I grab its head and it's got me partly in the cage, partly out, and it's wrapped around my arm and one around my waist and one around my leg. And I'm expecting my fireman buddy to come rushing over to help me. And he's standing up on a bed like, you know, the women eke a mouse type thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I look over at the grass over here and untangle this thing. That is awesome. So we managed to shove it down in the sack and then I put it in this great big wooden box and lugged it out to my van. And then when I got down to the airport, filling out the paperwork of, well, what's in it? It says a snake, because he needed a forklift to get it out of the back of the truck. <laughs> <laughs> There's one snake in that? I said, yeah, yeah, it's a, you know, a fairly big one. Do you want me to open it? No, no, that's okay. <laughs> but then when I got it, uh, the, the guy got it and told me that uh, it, it definitely, because he weighed it, 135 pounds. Actually, what he did is he weighed the crate and then, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. the, whole, the whole thing for the air bill, and then you could weigh the crate. He didn't try to pick up the snake. Yeah. <laughs> but he turned it loose in this room that had kind of a low shelf, and he forgot to tell somebody at a party or something because somebody went into that room looking for a bathroom, and they heard kind of a steam kettle-type hiss, and apparently he went running there to get him and just saw the silhouette of the snake shoot right behind the person. <laughs> 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 <It just missed laughs> <them. laughs> <clears throat> but yeah, that was that was that was a big snake too. But that was only 135 pounds. Wow! But no, ball pythons, as far as I'm concerned, are aquarium snakes. They're, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're not big. No, no, definitely not. Now, as far as um, again on the same topic of big snakes, as far as the new litigation that's come into play, I know it doesn't have any effect on uh, your breeding facilities here or anything like that. What do you think? What is your opinion on the actual litigation that's happened in Florida with the ban? or <clears throat> well, coming ban of large snakes. I think we've been importing large snakes in large numbers for 50 years and there hasn't been a problem yet. And to be honest with you, Florida um, reaped the benefits of all this import stuff. I mean, they, Delta Airlines even had a, well, you know, the fish and the animal business, their port of entry for all South America. So right. Miami in particular made a small fortune oh, definitely. off of, you know, the taxes and the import fees and all this kind of stuff. And and for them to now say, oh, gee, we got to stop all this stuff, look what it did. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I mean, South Florida is a special little ecosystem in its own, and the likelihood that any of this tropical stuff can get up through the cold, you know, weather belts further north and, and do any expansion is stupid. And what I think they ought to do is just, there was, what, 50-some species non-native that's already established in Florida. Right. Just say, hey, if you want it, we have it. Buy a license, come down. You can hunt stuff from India, Africa, South America. It's, <laughs> it's all here. Let's, let's go for it because right. you're not going to stop it, so why not just cash in on it? Very good point. Very good point. Now, uh, as far as uh, the reptile litigation and stuff like that, you have to have special permits and things of that nature to do... Um, uh, two of the species that you're uh, currently breeding, which is the Mexican beaded lizard and the Gila monster, how is it? How would someone go about getting those permits to own such reptiles? I know you can't own them in California by any means for any reason. Well, see, that's where you're wrong. Oh, okay, fantastic. <laughs> because <laughs> essentially, in a lot of states, because because they're only appendix to animals. Okay. In, in a lot of states, if the state itself doesn't protect the animal. You can walk into a pet shop and buy a Gila monster or a Mexican beaded lizard and put it in your lunchbox and take it home. There's no laws against it. Okay. Now, 
if it's an appendix one animal, such as an indigo snake, um, if you're in the state in which you buy it and the person legally has it, again, you don't need any permits or anything for it. Okay. But most cities and some states have lit uh, laws on the books that are prohibiting anything from specifically naming something to just something they call dangerous wild animals, and it's up to you know the law enforcement to interpret what that is. But in the wow. state, in the state of California, as far as the state law, well, let's start with the federal. In California, as far as the federal law, you can buy a Gila monster, a beaded lizard, no restriction. In California, as far as the state law, you can buy a Mexican beaded lizard with no restriction, but you need a permit for a Gila monster. And if it's a banded Gila monster that's supposedly found in California, you need one type of permit, endangered species permit, California endangered species. And if it's the one from Arizona and Mexico, you need an undesirable species permit, the same as you need for a ferret or a monkey or any number of other things. Okay. Uh, but then you got to go down to your city or county. Right. And your city or county, like the county of San Diego, has right. a dangerous wild animal thing, and they would prohibit it without permits. Oh, I see. And so you, you essentially have to take the most restrictive. You can't right, go to okay. the city and say, look, the state says it's legal, so I can do this. I mean, whichever... Whichever is the most restrictive, restrictive is the one you have to go with. Yeah. Okay. But as far as getting permits, to get the permit for the Gila Monster in California, you need uh, documented experience with a comparative species. Now, you can either be working in a zoo or museum or something where you actually have experience with Gila Monsters under their permit, uh -huh. or you can get Mexican beaded lizards and document the fact you're keeping them and everything for a couple of years and then apply for the similar species, which is the Gila monster. Wow. So the, the bottom line is I can sell you a three-foot meaner-than-hell beaded lizard, and you can legally have it most places. And after two years, you can go and say, now can I have these cute little things that are only a foot long? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now, um, <clears throat> let's see here. I guess basically the best way to put it is when did you first unlock the secret, I guess you would say, to start breeding what you do now, which is the milk snakes and, because I know well, you had king snakes for a long time and then it seems like you're more into the milk snakes now and then well, you've always had the healers and milk, the beaters. Milk snakes are king snakes, that's what a lot of people well, don't true. understand. There's yeah, Lampropeltis. Nine species of king snake, eight of them have the name king snake in their common name, the ninth one is the milk snake, but there's approximately 25 subspecies of milk snakes and one of those is the scarlet king snake. So if you want to get fully confused, wow. go for it. <laughs> but I'll leave that to the scale counters. Thanks. But really, um, we we used to commercially collect, and also import and trade and all this kind of mm -hmm. things. And once in a while, we get gravid females, and we kind of figured out how to lay the eggs. But normally, after you kept them in captivity for a year or two, they stop breeding, stop producing good eggs. Okay. But if you caught a wild male and you threw it in with your captive female, quite often he would breed the female, and the female would have eggs, and vice versa. So. It was kind of strange, but there's a couple guys over in Tucson, Arizona, that had a very large collection, a very valuable collection of gray banded kings, because back then they were ridiculously expensive, Right. and they were having trouble getting them to breed, and they said, you know, because the logic back then was if you let them get cool, they get mouth rot, and they die, they get sick. Oh, and okay. what, they, what they decided is, well, these snakes are cold in the winter, mm -hmm. we're just going to put them out in their shed in the backyard and let them get cold, see what happens. And this was a big step for, you know, that valuable collection. Yeah. But they did it, and sure enough, the animals bred the next season and produced good eggs. <laughs> and the rest of us just jumped on the bandwagon and said, well, hey, maybe maybe it's the hot in the day, cold at night, hot in the day, cold at night that's okay. doing the, the disease stuff. If, in fact, you drop their temperature and keep them like they would be underneath a rock or, you know, wherever they would go to hibernate, right. things should work out. And as it turns out, that's exactly what happened. Wow, that's amazing. Now, what made you stick with reptiles versus dogs or cats or something cuddly? <clears throat> well, I have cuddly things. I used to have rabbits to feed the snakes. So I've got <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> no, I like cuddly. <clears throat> um, just the interest. In fact, I, I, when I was trying to figure out in, at the point in my life what I wanted to do for a living, I couldn't figure out a way to make a living with reptiles. I mean, the zoos paid practically nothing and you had to do it their way. And so what I was looking at was, well, how how can I make a living and have enough time off to play reptiles? 
Mm-hmm. And so I could be a fireman. I was familiar with that life because my dad was a fireman. Off every other day, pretty good benefits, pretty good vacation. Or I could be a school teacher. Hmm, that might work. Summer's off, pretty good pay, you know, good vacation type thing. And then uh, having an 18-year-old pregnant girlfriend kind of made me decide, well, should I try to do six years of college and get out and get a job that pays the same as the fire department does right away, or should I go ahead and be a fireman? And <laughs> so I joined the fire department, and it served its purpose, and here I am. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, it's fun to make money, though. Yeah, right. it always is. <laughs> I mean, it used to be more fun when you go to a show and people are like, $200, I want that snake, let me up front. You know what Rather I like than the way it is now. What I like about that is the fact that you know, you do it for fun, but it's not like it's going to break you backwards if you don't do it. Right. You know, having that ability to have it as more of just a labor of love versus a labor. Yeah, just just be careful and never mention hobby. Because <laughs> IRS doesn't allow deductions on hobbies. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, whether, you, whether you officially lose money for five years straight, you intend on making money someday, it's not a hobby, it's just a investment that various legal things have come up to make it to where you couldn't make money this way so you had to go in a different direction and you had to put off the profit making for a while. Nice. So what made you choose to work with King Snakes? Uh, well, kind of the conversation we just had here. Okay. Um, basically, boas and pythons were an all-year-round thing. Mm. And your King Snakes, you hibernate or technically brewmate, but to me that sounds like something a cow does out in the field. <laughs> and so I, I still like to use the word hibernate, even though it's right. not correct. But for three months of the year, I don't have to do much of anything with the snakes. Mm-hmm. I can take off to Africa and go on a safari, or I can. Which you have done. I have. <laughs> I've a, seen the video. A, that was a kick in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to. Uh, <laughs> kind of changing direction here, but you'll have to tell them about the uh, cobra. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Because that was hilarious. Well. Well, I thought it was anyway. Well, first, when you get over there, um, they give you this book to read, or they get actually, they get, yeah, I guess they gave it to us on the flight over to read because it was like a sixteen twenty hour flight, and the first hundred pages are the snakes that can kill you, and the next twenty five or thirty pages are the ones that look like they can kill you, but they're only going to make you sick, and then there's the harmless ones. So you're supposed to know all these things. Well, there's a shield-nosed cobra and a hump-nosed cobra and a something, something. One of them's harmless and one of them isn't. And so we're driving along the road at night and we see this what looks like a dead snake. And so I pick it up and, yeah, it looks like a something. And our guys, yeah, it's a shield-nosed cobra. But I thought he said the other nosed cobra, but it was dead anyway, we thought. So I threw it in the sack because what we were doing was collecting stuff and then the next day taking pictures of it. And then live ones, of course, we'd release close to where we caught it. So the next morning, it's, it's you know, spent the night in my shower stall, and the next morning, it's still kind of limp. I figured it'd be stiff, but okay, great, you know, and I'm trying to pose it in a lifelike position, and it keeps sort of falling forward, so I pop it in the nose and do it back and everything. All of a sudden, <laughs> like so, you know, and, and says, you know, that's the one that killed Cleopatra. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had been putting my hand on his face and holding his head and trying to get it to hold still. And so, yeah, that was, that was a little thrill. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure you woke up after that one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just about out the door with his shoes on. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. So what kind of obstacles have you faced over the years? Breeding uh, uh, reptiles. People, people not understanding and uh, panicking about the fact they live next door to a room full of snakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why in El Cajon I started buying the houses around me, so that if anybody gave me any shit, I'd get a victim. Nice. <clears throat> that is definitely good. Well, that was actually my next question. How did you find a solution? I had three houses on the place around me. And, and all, also, back in those days, there was people from different countries that would come to the United States on what they called the shopping tour. Mm-hmm. Like, let, let's say you're a guy over in England, you get a whole bunch of price lists, and you run around to all of your friends, and you say, okay, the price range is 100 to 125 dollars. I'm going to charge 10 percent for doing this, and then I'll go over to the United States, visit these breeders, and pick out the animals personally, so that you know a lot of stuff was shipped over there was crap. And uh, so this way, they got to hand pick stuff. And essentially, what I wanted to do is I wanted to take one of the houses and have a guy raise lizards and another guy raise turtles. I mean, I wanted mine to be the shopping mall of reptiles, my gotcha. street, the marketplace. 
fact, I was already, I was going to have the street renamed after me, but that was, <laughs> it was pointed out that there's a whole lot of them in San Diego already that are named one way. <laughs> but but uh, anyway, after I got three houses, some of the you know once they became successful, now here they're using my contacts to make money, but once they become successful, they want to buy their own house. And I didn't want to sell them these houses because I wanted to maintain control of my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so they'd buy a house around the block or something, then I had no control over what they had. Mm -hmm. And they were using all my contacts and starting to raise some of the stuff I was raising. And so, okay, that ain't going to work. So so we started renting to normal people who didn't have snakes. (laughs) And if you don't like it, you're out. Pretty much. That's pretty much what we did. Pretty much. (laughs) But when I moved up here, I got tired of going back to try to collect rent and all that stuff. And so I basically, uh, two, two of the guys, Moran Reptiles and Rosie's Racks and Things, now reside in two of the houses because mm. way back when I had some legal trouble with the city of El Cajon, we had a little bit of a battle, and now it's actually on the legal record for the city of El Cajon. Snakes, as kept by Robert Applegate, are considered ordinary household pets. Uh-huh. Well, if you have a house that Robert Applegate owned and the snakes that Robert Applegate owned, <laughs> you're, you're pretty legal there. Yeah. Can't argue that. <laughs> and this is when I had Gila monsters and stuff back then, too, because, in fact, the um, head of animal control signed my, she was one of the, the uh, letters of recommendation on my concealed weapon permit, so... So, uh, you know, I was pretty set with the city of El Cajon. Although I do remember, one of, early before I started buying the houses, I had, a, I had just gotten back from Texas and probably had 50 rattlesnakes because we used to sell them to the uh, Western Zoological up in Monrovia because it paid gas money just to pick them up. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I had a 15 by 30 patio in the back and I had aquariums full of rattlesnakes. I mean, you walk into the room, it sounded like somebody with castanets playing you a song. <clears throat> and somebody must have complained because, um, well, first I knew the animal control guy, and he told me later that uh, the cop just came over and got him and said, we got to go see somebody, or he would have called mm-hmm. me and warned me that we were down. Yeah. But so this cop walks in because the garage door was open, so he comes to the screen door, and, are you Bob Applegate? I say, yeah, come on in. You know, I didn't know who it was. And, Rattlesnakes start rattling. He says, uh, and I understand you have some rattlesnakes. I said, well, no shit, man. You're a hell of a detective. <laughs> <laughs> well, that probably didn't go over real well. Well, you know. But he's, he's standing there with my friend Dale, the animal control guy, and he's got a five-gallon bucket. And he says, well, we're going to have to cite you and confiscate these. And I, I just looked at him. I said, what kind of flowers do you like? What do you mean? He said, well, if you try to get all these rattlesnakes in that bucket, you're going to die. And I just want to know what kind of flowers to send to your funeral. <laughs> and then I said, and, and by the way, uh, when we get to court, and they say, Mr. Applegate, did you have rattlesnakes? I said, yes, sir, I did. Um, quite often, Elko and Animal Control calls me, and I go out on calls for them and get the rattlesnakes that they're a little bit nervous about getting, and quite often they bring them by here to, for disposal. Um, yeah, I had them. So my friend Dale said, Bob, let me make a phone call. And he calls the guy. And, a little bit later, and I found out later that he called the animal control head, who called the police chief, who called the district attorney or something, who <laughs> called back, and then they called me. And uh, is officer so and so here? I said, yeah, it's for you. <laughs> and I could see as he's listening, his face is getting redder and redder and redder. So, so then he. <laughs> You got a week to get rid of these, or else. <laughs> I says, or else what? You're not coming back, are you? Says, no, goddammit. <laughs> and Dale was laughing. He came over later, and we were laughing our asses off. Oh, I'm sure. This is one of these guys that hides behind the badge, and everybody's, you know, bowing at his feet. Oh, yeah. He had, he had never been treated like that before. <laughs> right. I had to be real careful driving around there for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was an interesting story too. Now, kind of off topic, but you know, talking about the treatment of people, this is something, and I, you and I have talked about this personally before. Why is it that so few of uh, the quote unquote moguls I know, <laughs> or the ones that have been doing it as long as you guys have, you know, are the only ones that will talk to each other or talk to other people will actually tell us, you know. Look, you want to breed milk snakes? Here's exactly what you do. And then it well, seems like the newer people in the industry are like, I can't tell you that. That's 
That's a secret. Well, I, I'll it's admit, like, even, by, even by some of your supposed moguls, I've been chewed out by giving up information too easily. Right, right. Uh, but my feeling is that the people that helped me, even though the knowledge level was quite a bit different back then, are dead and gone. Sure. And it's my job, basically, to pass it on. Now, I'm not going to do the work for you. Right. But I'll certainly tell you all the mistakes I made so that uh, you don't have to make those. You can make new ones, and we can learn as we progress, because right. even though we've made tremendous progress in the last 20 years or so of breeding stuff, or 30 I guess it is now, or even more, um, 50 years from now, if I'm still around, I think we're going to look back on today and think, God, we used to believe that we could do it that way. <laughs> um, it, it worked a couple times, but geez, how stupid could we be? How come we didn't know this or this or this? And right. Because now that there's money involved, and veterinarians are getting involved in treating stuff and right. recognizing diseases and things, I mean, back back in the early days of breeding, if you took a snake to a veterinarian, they ran into the back and got Fry's book out, and kind of sounds like this. Let's give it a shot of this and see what happens, you know. And you right. usually, usually you had a dead snake or a non-breeding snake anyway. So if you couldn't right. cure it yourself, you're just better off letting it go because you didn't yeah. pay more than the snake was worth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but now, now they're you know getting to the level to where they can actually cure some of this stuff and the animal's still good for breeding. And mm -hmm. If it's something that's going to make you a couple thousand dollars a year in babies, you'll spend a few hundred bucks to save it. Oh, sure. Right it used to be, you know, everything used to be disposable. I mean, the the Indian light phase pythons, if I wanted one, I'd send $14 to a Balasu Brahminium in Madras, India, and he'd mail me one. That included postage. But who in the hell would want an Indian light phase python? They were meaner than hell. And the Burmese were only three dollars each for Marnaj Lak Chaya in Bangkok, Thailand. So why would you spend fourteen dollars on one of these, you know, not nearly as pretty Indian light faced pythons? Right. But and, and I, I'm not saying they did it, but a zoo could put an animal on display and let it starve to death over the next three to six months and replace it cheaper than buying the food to feed it for that period of time. Wow, that's amazing. Now who was your inspiration for, or I guess not necessarily choosing the path of reptiles, because obviously you made that choice on your own, but once you made the choice to get into reptiles, who was, who were the people that you looked to? I, I had never actually met him, but I'd say Raymond Dittmars, uh, he was one of the first professional reptile people right. that wrote for the common man, and he wrote some really interesting books, and the episode of the Bushmaster is one chapter of one of the books, Thrills, I think it's Thrills of a Naturalist Quest, but he's written several books that made it kind of a modern day adventure type thing, mm -hmm. and stories of snake collecting, and Carl Caulfield, the snakes and snake hunting, uh, right. he was a motivation to go over to the Ajo Road and run up and down there and catch <laughs> rattlesnakes. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, mainly Dittmars. Okay. But Caulfield was, in my high school days, I met a very, in fact, still a very good friend to this day, in the library because I checked the book out, and then you know they had the little deal where you sign the cards and all that stuff. Right. And then when I checked it in, there's who in the hell is this Rick Abbott guy? The book is out, and then I come back a week or so later and it'd be there. I check it out again and reread it because I loved it so much. Yeah. He was doing the same thing. <laughs> one day we met in the library and one of us had the book in our hand. So. Wow. That is awesome. And I guess uh, the last question would be, um, besides you know your greatest inspiration, what do you see for the future as far as the stuff that you're breeding now? Well, the, the stuff I'm breeding now is very convenient because it fits in 10 and 15 gallon aquariums. They're apartment sized animals. You can Definitely. feed them once a week. They don't require a lot of care. Uh, as population increases and you know the apartment owners and everybody won't let you have dogs or cats or anything and reptiles become more accepted. Uh, they're quiet, they don't howl at night, they don't shit in the neighbor's garden, uh, they, don't, they don't do a lot of stuff and so they're perfect pets. Right. And a lot of uh, apartment people don't want you to have aquariums because eventually it's going to break Spring and go leak. through to right. the next floor down. So I mean they're, they're literally the perfect pet for people that are crowded together and don't have a whole lot of space to take care of something. Exactly. And so I see the future getting brighter Definitely. for this stuff. Definitely. Now, I think you're already keeping your uh, premier or ultimate species, but one of the questions I do like to ask the moguls, um, you know, and regardless, I know I'm going to say it, but, you know, if money was no object and, you know, legal wasn't an issue, 
What, is there a species that's out there that you haven't kept that you would now? No. Because, quite frankly, legal isn't an issue and money isn't an object. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming, but I have to ask. Cause, you know, it's just one of those general questions that I ask everybody, so i got to make sure and ask you as well. I, I had the opportunity to get a couple Komodo dragons a few years ago if I wanted them, and I don't want them. Right. So right. I, I, don't, I don't really see anything in the reptile thing that I couldn't get if I, didn't, if I really wanted it. Right, right. Now, um, also, too, uh, on, a, on speaking of Komodo dragons... Fernando is documented as the largest Mexican beaded lizard in captivity. Correct. Is that correct? Ever found. Ever found. He's, he's the maximum record size for the Mexican beaded lizard. Okay. Now, my son Austin, uh, who's with me today, uh, read a little bit about the uh, Mexican beaded lizard on your website and uh, the story about the gentleman who was bitten. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't know if it's the same story or not, so I want to make sure... There was a Navy SEAL that had bought or had bought a Mexican beaded lizard from you because I was asking you about you know how powerful is the bite, mm -hmm. and you informed me that not only was he crying but it dropped into his knees and that was a baby. Well, I believe the Navy SEAL was the beaded lizard bite, right? And the other one was the Gila monster bite. Oh, okay. They both got bit about the same time. They were actually brothers-in-law. <laughs> and both of them That's were big, big, giant, muscular guys. Right. And one of them had a collection that he didn't particularly want known, and so he self-medicated and stayed home. Oh and the other God. one went into the hospital and was medicated with pretty much the same thing that the self-medication <laughs> was. And both of them ended up with the same results, mainly a tenderness and severe pain and everything, but one of them ended up with a twenty to $30,000 emergency room visit and the other one ended up with just a half bottle of Vicodin. <laughs> <laughs> and after all these years of working with the venomous stuff, you've never been envenomated? Never been envenomated. And, how, and just because I know somebody's going to ask, <laughs> how is that possible, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> no, I tell you, I got I got out of the venomous snake stuff for the most part, even though I have a few rattlesnakes out here for display. An eastern diamondback taught me that it's just inevitable that my time will be soon if I don't get rid of these things. Because, I mean, I've, I've had mambas out where you, you always tried to have a smooth floor and a broom. And they, they would kind of swim on the floor and you'd sweep them away from you. But if they started coming up the handle, which they could, you had to throw the broom and grab another one. But they tire pretty quick. <laughs> and once they get tired, then you can pick them up on a hook and get them back in their cage. But when they're not tired, you just tire them out and stay out of the way. Same when you're chasing cobras, by the way. <laughs> um, but this eastern diamondback, he, he was a good six feet long. He would eat pretty good-sized rabbits. And he was in this case that was six feet long and two and a half feet wide, two and a half feet tall. And there was a, a door on the top half of one side and the half of the other side. Right. Now, I had a, a brick and a, a wooden box leaning away from the other end that he would coil up under. And then I had a big water bowl down on the other end. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, I would just reach down and get the water bowl and clean it and put it back down there. Well, one day, a rabbit, I threw the rabbit in for the snake, and the snake was underneath the box. Didn't see a sign of him. The rabbit went on the far side of the water bowl and leaned up on the water bowl to take a drink. And then it was like you blinked and the rabbit screamed. I don't know if you ever heard a rabbit yeah. scream, but they sound like babies when you throw boiling water on them. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I blinked and the rattlesnake was fully extended, had bit the rabbit, and the rabbit was screaming in its death agony. Right. And I'm thinking... It could have had me any time it wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> Reaching down there grabbing that water bowl. Right. So I just decided, in fact, my knees felt a little weak. I called a friend of mine who was in love with the snake. I said, come get it. Cage, snake, everything. Everything. It's, it's got to go. And that's, well, the laws were starting to change, too. I mean, we used to import cobras and things, and they'd come in in the bag, and it was for, you know, a specific person. You wanted a cobra, I'd get you a cobra, but... You'd come over and the bag would be there and we'd poke and it would move. I'd say, okay, don't open it until you get home, you know, <laughs> this kind of stuff. <clears throat> but then copperheads, you know, we used to pick them up in Texas and bring them back. And 
water moccasins, catching them in Florida was a lot of fun. Um, well, actually, we caught them in other places too, but, but I went out with Tom Crutchfield wading up a creek. Of course, you know, California boy, hey, you wear old clothes, we're going to wade up a creek. Okay, well, I'm not picturing ankle deep water, we're holding the snake bags above our heads up to our waist. And I'm thinking, hey, Tommy, uh, what happens if we see a water moccasin anyway? <laughs> he says, well, believe it or not, they crawl out on the shore and try to go up through the jungle, basically, and so right. we jump out and we catch them. So we were doing that. And then we come around a corner, and there's a big splash. And uh, hey, Tommy, he's gone. Shit. He's got the car keys. So, I, I'm thinking, and I wondered where the hell he went. Well, then he comes popping up. What was it? It's either an alligator snapper or an alligator. We need it because he was working for the Snakeatorium at the time, and we right. need either one of them. Then he dives back down, and he's feeling around with his hands in the holes under the bank and everything. Unbelievable. Catch whatever it was. But that was a fun trip, too. <laughs> Now, how many places have you, well, um, how many, let's start with the United States. How many states have you been in collecting uh, or photographing or? Well, it was mostly collecting. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, pretty much all the southern ones. Okay. And then I've been in some of the, well, let's see, I've been in New York and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Oregon and Washington and Nevada and. A lot of them. <laughs> yeah, pretty much all of them. <laughs> well, I mean, when we take our trips uh, with the family and everything, right? Uh, we end up going from here to Wisconsin, then to New Jersey, and um, pretty much anywhere we stopped, I'd head out behind <laughs> the buildings or whatever and look for stuff. And right. Then in 1970, I took my wife and my daughter on a 30-day trip around the United States, and we were just... Wow. That's always been one of my dreams in high school. What we wanted to do is during the summer... We wanted to just take off and spend the whole three months driving around the United States, going to different places, collecting stuff. But there, there was sort of an imbalance. I either had plenty of money that I had to work, or I wasn't working and didn't have any money and couldn't afford to go. I just right. I couldn't seem to get the thing to where I had the money to be able to do this. So we, we yeah. never actually got to do that trip. But in 1970, um, we took sort of a visiting trip, but I combined it with going to different places looking for reptiles. And nice. In fact, that's the trip that I ended up in Panama City, Florida with Tom Crutchfield when he was a kid working at the Snakeatorium in <laughs> Panama City. Wow. <clears throat> but then I got to hunt the pine barrens and got to catch a pine snake and a corn snake and a hognose snake all in the same day. And really? That was the big three. Wow. But again, you go back to Caulfield's Snakes and Snake Hunting book, um, a lot of his stuff was in the pine barrens, so that yeah. was kind of a yeah. motivation to go there. And yeah, but, basically walking in his footsteps. But, yeah, but by this time I knew people in all these places, and it, it was kind of like out here. I mean, I can point to that mountain, and there's not a damn thing on it. But over there, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Right. And if you hang out with a local guy, say, okay, show me some stuff, and you know, you go with him, you get taken to best spot, best spot, best spot, rather than just floundering around and wasting half your time on the barren hillside. Right. Exactly. So anymore, when I go places, I just call up somebody that lives there and say, well, one of the things I do when I'm giving these lectures to the reptile clubs and everything is, mm -hmm. okay, these are my little mini vacations. I'm not going to charge you anything for the talk, but I don't expect to pay anything. So I want to get there, have somebody pick me up, give me a place to stay for a couple of days and show me the local reptile sites. I'll give you the talk, put right. me on the plane and send me home. There you go. And that's kind <laughs> And of, you've done several of those, and oh, I recalled yeah. the... Well, the one I remember you talking about mostly was the one, I think they uh, brought you out to Germany, or was it England? England. Well, I ended up smuggling 247 snakes into <laughs> Germany on that trip because I was in the area. I'm going to go ahead and leave that part out. I don't care. It's, it's, uh, the statute of limitations is long past. <laughs> but, but back then, you could just stick them in your luggage. and So I, I, well, I had paperwork to bring them to England, but they were actually for delivery in Germany, so... My guys was going to be, well, I'm taking these to England if I got caught in Germany. But since I didn't, I went ahead and delivered them to several people. <laughs> but see, I'm not much in geography now. I, I remember hearing in the war where the buzz bombs flew over the channel and landed in right. uh, England from Germany. So the only part of my trip I didn't plan was how to get from Germany to England. Because I didn't realize there were some countries in between. Because <laughs> I, had, I had my German friend, you know, I was picked up by one guy and then delivered some snakes and stayed with him a day or two. And then 
dropped off with somebody else, and I gradually got to the northern part of Germany. And then I thought there'd be a, you know, a ferry or something. <laughs> but just for a plane to go up and down, equivalent to here to Los Angeles, cost me almost as much as the whole rest of the round trip plane. Oh my gosh. And I get picked up by Chris Madison, and he's driving a, a sports car with a top down in England. And, of course, he's on the wrong side of the road and on the wrong side of the car. <laughs> but, but we're, we're going to stop at these pubs, and I'm, I'm a little bit worried about warm beer. Oh, and yeah. I'm thinking, well, how can you guys drink warm beer? He said, well, it's not really warm. It's room temperature, and it's pretty damn cold. But when it's freezing here, you don't want to go into a place and have ice-cold beer. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll have to admit, after three or four pubs, it got better. <laughs> How was it collecting with Chris Madison? Because I've actually read quite a few of his books. We didn't we didn't do a whole lot of collecting because th- there's very few things in England. I mean, there's a common snake, right. which isn't common. There's a common lizard, which isn't common. There's a common toad, which isn't <laughs> common. common. Um, I think we mostly visited people that had collections really? when I was with Chris. Oh, okay. Um, I don't recall actually going out in the field because pretty much they said, well, <laughs> there's nothing. <laughs> there's nothing to go find. <laughs> That's pretty cool too. Is he? Yeah. Yeah. I I could just picture you guys hanging out together because just from the your uh, both of your books, you write. At least I think Chris does because I've never met him personally. But I know you write like you talk. Well, Chris Chris was staying at my house as a guest one time, and he wanted me to write a book on stuff. And I basically said, "Okay, Chris, how much do you make on these books?" He says, well, about $10,000. I said, well, how long does it take to, to write them? He says, well, with the rewrites and the research and everything else, it takes about six months. I said, well, you see that wall over there? I make about $40,000 a year doing that. And I don't really like to write or do anything. Uh, so why don't you just take any information you want from me and just give me credit for it on your book? And you know, But then he said... Well, wouldn't you like somebody to just come running up and say, Mr. Applegate, could you just autograph my book? And that stuck in the back of my mind. So when Philippe asked me to write the Milk Snake book, mm-hmm. and it was only 70 pages or something, I thought, right. yeah, then I could get that Mr. Applegate thing. <laughs> 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 so that's when I did that. And then, uh, then Bob Ashley asked me to write the new one on Milk Snakes. Why can't I bend this one? Right. On Milk Snakes and King Snakes. And so uh, I did that one too. But. The first one I was able to do at work, and well, no, it's, it was easier because you know I could just go over after normal working hours into the office. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, it took me three days to pencil it and two weeks to type it. And I remember when I turned it in, the girl said, "My God, this is double space typing. You must have must have taken you forever with the rewrites and stuff." I said, "What's a rewrite?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I penciled it out, and then as yeah. I was typing, oh, this looks better over here, you know, and I draw right. lines. And, but I mean, I, basically, what I turned in was the final copy. Oh, sure. But they did come back and say, "Well, you go from one cage of snakes to a commercial collection. Can you write about a page on blending of you know if you have half a dozen cages or whatever?" <laughs> but that was the only change I had to make. Yeah. So that worked out pretty good. Nice. Then I said, "Fuck you. We're keeping them." <laughs> and so they issued me a permit. <laughs> <laughs> so fishing game now actually said, made you get rid of. The, the, the three the generations captive breeding San Diego Mountain James. <laughs> and none of the zoos or anybody like that's breeding those, is that correct? Yeah. And why did they make you get rid of them? Because they decided to protect them. <laughs> oh my god. Well, that's one thing that I asked you. You had them for, you said, three generations, right? Mm-hmm. And why all of a sudden, because they all of a sudden decided to say they're protected? Yep. But, um, but you already had it for so long. Well, that's, I mean, now now you can make a battle, but uh, there wasn't any precedent back then. This was all this was like the early '70s, and it was all kind of kind of new. And if you didn't have any money to hire lawyers and stuff, you had to go along with the bullshit. Now, two days ago, we were sitting here, and a one of the black Baja whip snakes crawled across that dirt area and went into the plants over there. And there was a couple kids here, and they wanted to try to catch one and couldn't find it. So, <laughs> so we sat here, and then it crawled over there and went along the wall. And, then they cornered it, but still couldn't catch it because it tried to bite them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the one guy was saying he wanted to follow in the footsteps of the crocodile hunter, but oh, as the guy Lord. was backing up and said, "No, no, the crocodile hunter would have went that way." <laughs> 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 oh, 
But now, we have a lot of fun up here. Is there anybody in the industry nowadays that you actually, I can't say really look up to, but re- have respect, well... <laughs> respect is a good thing, absolutely. Okay. Um, I mean, there's a lot of guys that I know by reputation that would be, you know, very worthy of respect, but right. some of the ones that I can think of that I know personally are Mark and Kim Bell and Ernie Wagner and... Um, Oh, there's just a lot of them. I can't. Right, remember. right. I, I'm kind of bad with names, but Don Hamper. Um, okay. They're just. I mean, there's people that. Um, well, here in California, Randy Wright. I mean, he's got very good animals and takes very good care of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you go to the reptile shows, and quite a few of the people are, you know, very well versed. I mean, they don't want to sell something that's going to die. I mean. Right. I mean, I, I wholesale stuff to distributors and stuff and they get the food records and everything else i mean i don't dump any junk on them because right i want them to come back next year and the year after and the year after exactly one, one of the best things i get is when i go to the shows hey man i really like your snakes oh tell me more yeah well <laughs> i bought 10 from you and 10 from this guy and 10 from this guy and Yours are all still alive <laughs> <laughs> i think well <laughs> I'm not going to mention any names. But, right, right, uh, right, right. But there's people that, uh, well, I remember one guy had a uh, uh, contract with Petco or PetSmart or something, and he had to deliver a certain number of animals to him. And he, Bob, Bob, I'm desperate. I need some stuff. And he'd come over, and there's a couple of them with their heads sticking out of the egg. He squeezed them out of the egg and put them in a box and shipped them to PetSmart. Jeez. And I'm thinking, what are, what are the odds that, you know, I mean, PetSmart, if you give them something that is being hand-fed, it's iffy whether they can take care of it properly, but taking something out of the egg like that, right. I said, look, I don't want my name even mentioned. I'll sell it to you. You're willing to pay me my price, but right. I, you know, this is this is not the way I do things, and I don't want right. to ever come back on me. Yeah. Oh, no, I won't tell him I got it from you. Trust me. I, I trusted him because he yeah. wants everybody to think he's producing all that stuff. Right. What would you say? I mean, are you, first of all, let me ask, are you going to the NARBC? I can't remember. Yes. Okay. Yes. What would you say about vendors, people, exhibitors, whatever the case may be, as far as those going to the show to like prepare for, what is your well, sense on those shows? How do you feel about them? The okay, that go, that kind of I, one of my sales pitches, if you will, is every one of my animals has a food record stuck to the bottom of the container. Now, if you walk up to a table and there's 50 cups of snakes on the table, and you ask a guy, tell me about that snake, and it's not written down, do you really think he can remember that? Exactly. But on the other hand, people like Randy Wright don't keep records, but I'm sure they have, okay, these have been feeding, you know, every week, and these over here are my bad ones, because everybody produces bad ones. Sure. Uh, I say bad ones, ones that won't go to a domestic mice right away. Mm -hmm. Our bad ones end up in my wife's mulch pile. They do not get sold. Right. Now, towards the end of the year, I'll have a, a whole pile of them on one uh, one rack and if you were to come up and say yeah these are worth 100 bucks each I'll give you 20 and take my chances you know I might sell them to you in person here under those conditions but they don't go to the shows and they don't get offered to general public unless they've fed three times with absolutely no tricks required gotcha. or more <clears throat> and you can look at the record and see exactly when they ate and what they've been doing when they shed who the parents are the whole bit um, I, I guess I guess the best thing I could say would be first the snake needs to look healthy and two you've got to believe the guy that you're buying him from mm-hmm. if he's got a reputation as being a good guy and has been around for a lot of years you're probably pretty safe buying a snake from him if he's somebody that you've never heard of um, you're taking a chance mm-hmm. and as far as like well with the regard of being the kind of person you are you're very open and you, it's not like you have anything to hide or have any secret well, things. I mean, what would you tell the other vendors that are kind of like, oh, well, I'm going to sell you something, but I'm not going to tell you anything about it. You know, that, <laughs> that candidness, you know what I mean? To the well, people like myself who don't know much. To be honest with you, that's how people come to me to buy stuff. And so I can't really complain that these people are cutting their own throats by not instilling <laughs> confidence in... Right. in I you know. new business. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, putting it, you know, <clears throat> accurately, that is true. And so if, if, you know... Oh, yeah, it's definitely true, because I remember when, unfortunately, I was... Well, I needed a job, so I was working at Petco. Uh, a gentleman and his son came in, 
said, you know, we need an enclosure. We need uh, we need um, the substrate, the heater, the what have you, mm-hmm. whatever. Fantastic, you know. And of course, as I always did when you know serving customers, what's it for? What are you putting in the enclosure? Right. What are you What are you doing? Right. Oh, we happen to uh, come across Bob Applegate, you know. And I said, say no more. <laughs> and they're like, what? What are you talking? About? You know, Bob? I said, well, I've known him for actually about a year now. I'm actually the editor for the San Diego Herb Society. I said, say no more. Go to Bob first. Pick up your snake. He will tell you. Exactly what you need, right okay. down the line. Okay. <laughs> they came back the next day and they said, "Okay, Bob said I need this, this, and this." I said, "Okay, <laughs> we're all set. <laughs> you know, usually, Here you go." <laughs> usually, if, oh, now this time of year they can keep it in a box for a while, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, normally I'll tell them, "Okay, you want to get your enclosure and everything first, right?" No, it's it's you know a you know buyer beware business still. I mean, there's no no standards. There's no. You know, the snake has to pass this particular checkpoint uh, <coughs> offered to the public. And so, essentially, it is buyer beware. Right. Now, why, or I guess a better question would be, how hard would it be to put that type of standard in, not necessarily, you know, uh, the snake has to pass this test, but of getting the industry to subscribe to a standard? I, I would think it would be almost impossible because you got people that, you know, buy a couple snakes and they suddenly have eggs and they hatch out and they want to sell them and they might not even know how to sex the animals. They might not know much of anything of getting babies to even eat. Right. And so they, you know, a lot of them get dumped off in the pet shop. Somebody will have a batch of corn snakes and, well, hell, I'll trade it to you for, you know, the next 20 mice I need in a bag of food right. or something. And so then the pet shop's got animals with no proven history. Now, normally corn snakes are pretty easy, but, but who would guess? that if you have trouble getting a corn snake to eat, you can get a tree frog and wash a mouse in soap and water to get rid of the mouse smell, a pinky, and then rub it on a tree frog and they'll gulp it down. Who, who would think the corn snakes in the wild eat tree frogs? But they do. Oh, I would have never guessed, actually. <laughs> and, I've, and I've owned corn snakes. I've read books on corn snakes. Indigo, indigo never, snakes. Indigo snakes. Never mentioned. Who would, who would guess that you could have a shallow tray of goldfish and it would get the babies to eat? That's one of the tricks of getting baby indigo snakes feed. Unbelievable. You know what? Actually, I heard you tell a story that I hadn't heard before. Um, well, I make up stuff once in a while. No, 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 no. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't made up because this gentleman was buying a snake from you. Uh, <laughs> it was in regards to um, the one female you had to try to make a snake of the males. And then after that, you told him another story of something about taping the anal scale shut. Oh, that's when you And I had to walk away because uh, my son had grabbed some uh, photographs that I wanted to see, and I missed the story. So I wanted to hear about how to get these snakes to breed and all this weirdness well, with taping the well, scales. Well, the, the, the people that are trying to cross species, like king snakes and right, snakes right, and stuff okay. like that. <clears throat> well, one of the tricks they used to, I mean, they tried, in fact, it was sort of funny because years ago, and this is a little off the subject, but kind of leading into it. Sure. Years ago, there was a paper presented about artificial insemination of reptiles. Really? And wow. <laughs> okay. it was presented wow. in one of these big <laughs> symposiums. And, I mean, the guy was talking for a half hour, 45 minutes, and there was a question and answer session. Have you had any success? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> well, well, no, but we expect you to. I heard that story. Brain. I heard that story. <laughs> but, My dad told me that story. But some of the, some of the guys that are doing the crossing, what they'll do basically is they'll they'll take well let's say you wanted to breed a king snake and a corn snake right and you got a receptive female corn snake well you put your male king snake in with a female king snake but you tape her vent shut so that he can't make the connection right and he's okay. horny as hell and trying and everything else frustrated yeah then you yank the female out and you throw the, the female corn snake in and he goes right to her got it of course because he might eat her later. But <laughs> now, speaking of eating there, I don't think. Uh, well, I know Marco didn't hear it, but I've I've heard it a couple of times because we've been friends for a couple of years now. Going the uh, the uh, king snake that uh, female that tried to make a snack of all of her mate. Well, not all of them because you eventually just, it succeeded. It was just the one. It was just the oh, one it was just the one that she didn't like. Because I've I've well, I don't know if we saw him up there, but I've got colonies of one male and <coughs> three, four, five females. And right now, how do you pull that off? Well, because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes the 
some of them are twice the size of others. They're okay. not even the same size. But you, you don't want to raise them together as babies um, because babies are stupid. And it's like they're tasting the world. And I mean, I've even had corn snakes that I didn't have enough cages to separate them. I kept them in groups for a while. They just had one eat the other without any food being around or anything else. So, I mean, you're, you're asking for trouble when you're doing babies. Okay. But once they reach adult size, mm-hmm. as long as there's no, ma- no more than one male in the group, normally you can mix king snakes, uh, the same subspecies, but, but you can, you know, keep them in colonies like you saw me doing up there. Yeah, yeah, but you had quite a few the, colonies and, up and there. Including, including the getula, the speckles, you know, the speckles and the negrita and things like that, which are the most cannibalistic of the group. <clears throat> but one year, well, one time, I, I wanted to put this one male in with this one female, and this female grabbed the male and basically wanted to eat him. <laughs> and I put other males in with this female, no problem. Put other females in with a female, no problem. Put that male in with other females, no problem. But several times over the next few months, I tried to put those two together, and she would head right for him for a meal. And it's the only time I've ever really had any huh. trouble introducing them. You know, mixing them. Right. So she, so, so, so it's not, she and he, for whatever reason, for whatever she wanted reason, to make him a snack. For whatever reason, he was edible. <laughs> and he was a little smaller than she was, so that, you know, added to the problem. Right. But that's the only time I can remember that I've had any trouble making colonies. Now, you know, all those ones that are being raised up there for future breeders are being raised separately. Of but course. Once, but once they, you know, get to the point where I want to breed them, Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be throwing them together in mass, and then watching them for a while to see if there's any kind of problem. And then we do, with all the little plugs and stuff you saw, we do separate them in individual boxes right. for feeding and keep them separate for a few hours afterwards. But but having them mixed Really? Like only that, for a few hours? Yep. Okay. Now, j- just so the food response goes away. Okay. But, but um, we've had, you know, great success. and. In the cages I have down here, where there's a cage and a drawer and a cage and a drawer and a cage and a drawer, well, let, let's just say that I've got six snakes, and I have a male and female, and then two females and two females. Well, during the week, I have to get okay. them all fed and move that male around to be with all the females that I think are receptive. Right. But I can put the same six snakes together as a colony, separate them for feeding for an hour or two a week, and then. Basically, he can do all the females. I had one one male king snake I call Lucky that bred with seventeen females one season. One season? No, it was repeat, you know, repeat breedings on. But I, I got seventeen clutches of eggs from females fathered by this male. By Lucky. By Lucky. That's a hell of a name. Well, he was named after the act, not before. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if that's a precursor. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like the story I heard recently. This woman takes her husband to one of these farm shows, you know, at the fair, and he comes up to this one bull and basically uh, says, this bull fathered 50 offspring. Mm-hmm. So she kind of nudges him, hey, he did 50. <laughs> and then they go to the next bull, and this one did 75. You know? <laughs> then the next one was, and this one did 100. And the guy turns to her and says, well, Ask the guy if it was with the same cow each time. The funeral is next week. One of my favorite things is I like to, because people are always asking me questions. Mm-hmm. And I like to say I've only been asked two stupid questions. Oh my gosh, you're business. actually going to tell this story. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I have it on, on audio, so I can actually print this later. I, I've, I've only been asked two stupid questions in this business. That's where we cut it off, right there. I doubt if you'll ask number three. You can ask me what the two stupid questions are? Somebody will. (laughs) Someone will. But But what are the two stupid questions? The first one was, if I buy this snake from you, can you guarantee me its parents weren't sterile? (laughs) That is a stupid question. But there's actually some reasoning behind that one. Um, Really? I didn't know this part. Yeah, because it was with an albino speckled king. Mm-hmm. And back in the early days, okay. when they were breeding albino to albino, they were having a lot of trouble with sterility. Mm-hmm. And most of the successes were albino to head, either way. And, right. so, and so that's what they were thinking about. And they just asked the question improperly. 
Oh, okay. But but the one I have absolutely no explanation for, <laughs> number two, is how much are your sixty-five dollar milk snakes? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I the answer's I, still the same to that I one, can't right? Explain that one away. <laughs> oh man, I want you sixty-five dollar milk snakes. I love that one. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe I was being asked that. Okay, so there you have it. That was Robert Applegate. And uh, just to let you folks know, during the uh, interview process, we also got a tour of his facility, which you can check out at, of course, reptileapartment.com. And don't forget, please give our friends a t- our, uh, sponsors, I should say, a tumble at Comic Karma, your comic book journey destination. Next week, we will be interviewing the very special guest, uh, Brian Barchik of BHB Reptiles and Snake Bites TV. So once again, leave some comments on the post on the website, www.reptileapartment.com. And if you want to check out Bob, he's at applegatereptiles.com. Thank you very much.